We are this morning in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. We've started a new series, walking our way through this book. You know that it's my practice to go through a book uh, because I think one of the ways that we ought to uh, take Scripture in is, is in, in, in whole pieces. In other words, Paul wrote a letter to the Thessalonians and in the course of weeks or months, we'll take that whole letter in, in order, in process, and get Paul's whole message to a church as he goes through. It's beautiful and that you don't get to skip anything. You have to deal with everything that you come across. It's there. And so as we come into 1 Thessalonians, I've, I've called this series Basic Christianity. Maybe ancient Christianity. I don't know how we go to basic because... 1 Thessalonians may be the first letter, the first book of the New Testament written. There's some debate over whether it's this one or Galatians. Take your pick. It's either the first or the second. So it's, a, it's an early book. It's one of the first. Paul writes this, one of his first letters to a young church plant in Thessalonica where he had been for a period of time planting a church and got pulled away. And he's writing back to them and it's a shorter letter. It's not like Romans or 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians. Some of those later letters that are full of controversy and, and issues. And, and I'm not saying there isn't some in this book. There are. There are some issues. But, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a more basic writing to this young church that is suffering and encouraging them. And it's interesting to me in the first few verses of Thessalonians as he's writing to this church to encourage them, he raises what to us is a massively controversial issue. And the danger with you know, talking about something that's controversial is that by definition, some of you will agree with me and some of you won't. Right? And some of us, that there's disagreement on it. And so as I move into this, as Paul uh, begins to speak about God's choosing... The doctrine, what we would call the doctrine of election, which in the first four verses of this letter, Paul brings up as if it's first things first, basic, you know, and, and moves on without explanation as if it's not controversial at all. In fact, he thinks it's helpful uh, as he writes to this church. So I would simply ask you, you, you may know at this point you're going to disagree with me. You may wonder if you're going to disagree with me. You, you, you may have a lot of thought. I would simply say this, is to give me a hearing. Uh, you may find yourself, it tends to be an emotional issue. Some people, you know, you can feel it start to well up. Wait a minute. You know, I, I hear you, I hear you, just hear me. Um, like, give me the chance and you can go away. And good and godly people disagree on this issue. But as clearly and as faithfully as I can do it, Paul crosses this and, and so I, we stop, hunker down and say, what is Paul saying? First Thessalonians, we're going to look at verses really 4 and 5, maybe through 7. I'm going to read just the first 7 verses. Hear then the Word of God. Paul and Silvanus, Silas and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith, your labor of love, your steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, for we know, brothers, loved by God, that He's chosen you. And we know this because our Gospel came to you not only in word, but in power. And in the Holy Spirit and with a full conviction. You know what kind of men we proved to be among you for your sake. And you became imitators of us. 
and of the Lord. For you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. Pray with me. Father in heaven, we come to your word. It is living and active. Father, we don't want to be controversial. We want to understand what you're saying here and throughout the scripture. And I pray this morning that you would be near to us and give us great grace as I speak, as they listen. Uh, We invite your presence and your power that the word this morning would come not just in word, but in, in the power of your Holy Spirit in full conviction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul expresses early in, the, in this, in the first couple sentences, if you read these as sentences, in the first couple sentences, Paul expresses his conviction and his confidence that this young church, this young group of believers gathering in Thessalonica are chosen by God. And he believes he has evidence to make that assertion that we'll talk about in a few minutes. But he he brings out right away, he believes they're chosen by God, that they are God's elect. And whenever you see those two words, chosen and elect, they're just two different ways the New Testament or the English translates the Greek. They are synonyms. They are interchangeable. If you look at this verse in the King James, the King James translates this as knowing your election. Just as Paul says, knowing that you have been chosen by God. The King James says, knowing your election. It's the same thing. Just a matter of which English word you choose. The doctrine, it's that doctrine that is there that pops up all over the New Testament. The word makes people nervous. I understand that. And that's because it's related to the whole idea of predestination. And the Scripture does that. Scripture puts them together. So we'll start then in Ephesians 1, verse 4 and 5. You'll see that my notes today, some weeks are like one or two quotes. Today, I'm going to just like fire hose you with Bible. <clears throat> so... Starting in Ephesians 1, he says this, even as He chose us. right? So there's the concept that, that Paul, again, he says He chose us. When did He do it? This choosing that God did of the faith. When did He do it? Before the foundation of the world. And what did He choose us for? What was His goal? What is He after? What is He going to make us? He chose us for what? He chose us that we should be holy and blameless before Him. What does that mean? Saved. Who gets to be holy and blameless before God? All who are holy and blameless for God are saved. And all who are not are not. Right? And then he goes on, and, he, and, he, and this sentence is parallel to that one. He does it again. In love, He predestined us. Chose us. Predestined is to choose before the foundations of the world. He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ. What does that mean? To be saved. It means what He said before, that we should be holy and blameless before Him as sons and daughters in Christ. Why? On what basis do you do this, Lord? Why do you do this? Tell us. Well, it's according to the purpose of His will. And God is going to push back with that idea again and again when we start asking the questions. And we will. He's going to push back and say it is according to the purpose of His own will. He chose us in Christ before the foundations of the world. In love, He predestined us. To it. So these things are together. The Bible puts them together. The choosing of a people by God. Which is a clear teaching of all of Scripture. And most of us know this. It's the Old Testament as well as the New Testament. And it's funny to me, or just funny, not funny, haha, funny, curious to me. It's interesting to me that people who have no problem with God choosing a people in the Old Testament. Uh, Balk 
at the idea that He chooses the people in the New Testament. And a lot of people who will hunker down and double down on the fact that God chose Israel of all the nations of the earth will back off on the idea that He chose a people not by a national identity, but, but a people in Christ. And they balk at the idea that, it, that, that this is the way God has done it in both Testaments, and He always has. 1 Peter 2.9, when Peter is writing, he says, you are a ch- to the church again, you are a chosen race. Where does, where does Peter get that idea? That is a quote. You are a pro- chosen race in a royal priesthood is Exodus. It's Old Testament. He pulls it from then. He says, like Israel was a chosen race and a royal priesthood in the Old Testament, you, church of Jesus Christ, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, like the people of the Old Testament. Not only does it say it of both, the New Testament actually borrows the Old Testament language to describe it. God's people in the Old Testament are chosen elect. God's people in the New Testament are chosen. In other words, all of God's people ever are an elect and chosen people what the Bible says. Um, and, and I think most of us at one level would have to agree with that. Election then is God's eternal choice. It's eternal. He did it before the foundations of the world. Before the world was made, He chose us before the foundations of the world that we would be holy and blameless. It is God's eternal choice. It not only arises in eternity past before there was a world. It rides to an eternal life and an eternal future. It is God's eternal choice of a certain definite individuals, a church, a people to salvation in Jesus Christ. And I believe it's in Christ whether it's Old Testament or New. I don't believe there's a human being from Adam to the last man or woman alive that ever gets saved that isn't saved because of Jesus Christ and Him alone. That's another sermon for another time. But the reality is, Only the blood of Jesus can make us holy and blameless before Him. New Testament writers love this word. They love this theme. We dodge it. We avoid it. That's why when we preach, we often don't preach through a book and we'll just pick the ones that don't talk about this so we don't have to talk about it because it makes us nervous. But it's a prominent theme. Throughout the Scripture, the New Testament writers love it. They don't shy away from it. From Jesus to Revelation, and this is where I'm going to fire hose you with, with Scripture again. I'm just going to give you like a half a dozen. We'll run through them quick. But I'm picking out of dozens of New Testament verses that talk about it. And, and it would take me months to fully preach each of these texts and to pull out and to tie them together and to show you what it's saying. But let's just, you know, Matthew 22:14. Jesus says, many are called. And few are chosen. Starting with Jesus. He wants to say few are chosen. There's a choosing. Many are called. You know, the word goes out. Jesus is preaching liberally to the calling everybody. But for, for all that are called, only few are actually chosen and come. Some will say, well, Jesus is saying this to the apostles and He's just saying that He chose them to be apostles. But I would just say that does violence to the text. He doesn't say you didn't become apostles because of your own choice. I made you apostles. He says, you didn't choose me. That's discipleship. That's the basic thing. That's not, we don't, we don't all get to be apostles. If he's talking about apostles, then he wouldn't talk about choosing me because that's all of us. And he's saying, you didn't choose me. I chose you. This is important to Jesus. The order of this thing is, in, is important to Jesus. That his disciples understand it. 
Matthew 24, 31, he's going to send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they're going to gather his elect from the four winds. You know, and why Jesus chooses that word. He doesn't say he's going to gather his church from the four winds, or he's going to gather his disciples, or he's going to gather his followers. He says, I'm going to gather the elect, my elect. In other words, I'm just simply saying, Jesus doesn't shy away from it. He says, I want you as a New Testament church, just like my Old Testament church, to be identified, self-identified the same way as a chosen people. And when I come back in the end and I gather everyone I've come to gather, he says, my elect. 1 Peter 1.1, when Peter writes to the church, it's another suffering church. 1 Peter is a book about suffering. Far, far from avoiding this topic, like, ah, oh, I don't want to get controversial. Let me just stick down to encouraging you as you suffer. No, he opens the book and says, the apostle of Jesus to those who are elect. Peter puts it on front, on top, and says, as I write to you, this is, this is front and center. This is first and foremost. This is, this is your identity. This is not something to be dodged. This is something to open the conversation with. To address the church. Titus 1.1, Paul does the same thing. Paul, the servant of God and apostle of Jesus Christ. Why? For the sake of the faith of God's elect. You know, sentence one. You know, this is why I do what I do. For the faith of a certain group of people. The people of God. The chosen. The elect, he says. James 2.5 Listen, my beloved brothers, has God not chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom? What does He choose them for? Has not God chosen the poor? What did He choose them for? To have faith and to be the heirs of God. That is to be saved. Right? To, be, to have faith and to be Heirs of the kingdom, inheritors of the kingdom. This is what it means to come to Christ. He says, has not God chosen these folks to be in faith and in the kingdom? Revelation 17, 14, he says, they will make war on the Lamb. And the Lamb will conquer them, for He is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. And those who are with Him are called and chosen. Like last word, he's coming back. He not only gathers elect from the four corners, but when he rides forth in his power, he comes forth with his elect. In other words, again, here, here I guess is where I'm going with this whole thing. Every biblical Christian believes in predestination and election. Or you're not a biblical Christian. You're some other kind of Christian. Because the Bible just teaches it. Now, you may believe differently a little bit than me about it, and you may want to study it some more deeply to really come to understand it, because I've only scratched the surface on these words and the concept that rides through all of the Old Testament and all of the New Testament from Jesus to Revelation. It is a biblical concept, and if you're a biblical Christian, then you must embrace it wholeheartedly. Paul leads with it. Peter leads with it. He, he, it is foundational to the things he's trying to teach them and, and the foundational to the way he wants to comfort them. This is, we'll see in the end, a comforting doctrine. I want to say that this election that we're talking about is sovereign and unconditional. The only reason that the Scripture ever gives for understanding it is this. It is according to the counsel of His own will. Right? And that's where He says again and again from uh, Ephesians 1. He says it, I think, three times. 2 Timothy 1.9, He says this. The One who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Why, Paul? Why did He do this? Not because of our works. 
And again and again, the Scripture and the writers are going to go to this thing. Not because of our works. In other words, not because of anything we have done. This is important to almost every biblical writer. The concept and understanding that it is not according to our works, but because of what? His own purpose and grace. You want to put, you want to put the reason somewhere, you want to nail it down, and again and again, it's His purpose and His grace. And to know that we're talking about the same thing, not only why does He save us and call us, but when did He do it, which He gave to us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Right? Ephesians 1 again. When did He do it? Right? He saved us and He called us with this call according to His own grace and purpose which He gave us in Christ before there was anything. Why did God choose out Israel? In the Old Testament, you ever hear the, you know, the text and it preached, why does God choose Israel? It's the same thing. When you push back in Israel, in the Old Testament, God says basically the same thing according to His own purpose and will. He loves us because He chose to love us. It's His purpose and His will. Deuteronomy 7, 7-9, we read, you know, the Lord God has chosen you, Israel, to be a people. His people. For His treasured possession. He, he says, I chose you to be Mine. Out of all the peoples of the earth, on the whole face of the earth, I chose you to be My treasured possession. Not because you are more numerous than any of the other people, It's not because of that reason that the Lord set His love on you and chose you. That's what He says here. The Lord beloved of God and chosen by Him. right? That He loved you and chose you. It's the same language as Israel as it is for the church. He he loved you and He chose you. Why? You were the fewest people of the earth. He chose that which was poor, James just said. right? He chose that which was poor to be rich in faith and to be inheritors of the kingdom, to be Israel, to be saved, to be His people. Because the Lord loves us. Was it something in Israel? Were they large? Were they strong? Did they have faith? They weren't a people of faith. He spent the next, you know, were they believing and faithful? They spent the next centuries trying to rid them of their idolatry and faithlessness. But God chooses them and comes after them, and in the midst of them, there is a spiritual remnant who believe. Is it because they were good or strong or big? That he loved and chose. Spurgeon says, Whatever may be God's reason for choosing a man or a woman, it certainly is not because of any good thing in the man or the woman. Spurgeon, a Baptist of the last century, a preacher, making the same point that the Scripture seems to say over and over again, not because of anything we did, not because of your works, not because of your will, but according to God's purpose and will. Election is effectual. That means it's effective. That means it accomplishes what God wants to accomplish. That what God chooses and predestined, what He planned before the foundations of the world is almighty, sovereign, uncreated, creating God. When He creates the world and He plans and He predestines and He chooses and when He does it, it says that in the end, this God, He accomplishes it. That it doesn't fall to the ground. That it's not left to chance. We see it in places like Romans 8.30 where he says, those whom he predestined. What I want us to see here is that each time he moves forward, the group that he's talking about is the same group. Those whom he did this to, predestined, before the foundations of the world, those are the ones he called. And the ones he called, those are the ones he justified. 
And the ones He justified, those are the ones He glorified. Those He predestined are glorified. He, it, it works. Like, like he, finished, he accomplishes His plan. What He planned and predetermined, what He chose, what He did, He says He accomplishes and it ends up as a people for His special possession for eternity. That He accomplishes it. We see it in more of a parabolic way when Jesus talks about it. If you read John 10 in His, in his whole parable of the sheep and the shepherd, uh, uh, and again, there's a whole sermon in here, but I'll simply say this. He says, my sheep hear my voice. Those he predestines, he calls. Now you'd say, well, he calls everybody, doesn't he? In some ways, Jesus says many are called, <laughs> but few are chosen. You know, and then he says here, those he predestines, he calls. So there is a calling that leads to justification that is, that is different. Many are called, but few are chosen. That is justified. So, my sheep hear my voice. Those He predestines, He calls. I know them. Of all the peoples of the earth, I knew you. And they follow me. The word, like this passage says, doesn't come as a word only, but in power. They follow me when they hear that call. I give them eternal life. Those who are called are justified for an eternal life. And those who are justified, he says, will never perish. They are glorified. And you see what Jesus is saying parallels on the Roman. Paul says it theologically. And, and Jesus is saying it as a shepherd and his, and his sheep. But he says the exact same thing. Those who I give eternal life to, they will never perish. Those who are called are justified. The justified are glorified. No one can snatch them out of my hand. Why? Because it's according to my purpose, in my plan, in my will, in my power. And so no one is going to, no one thwarts. The will of God. <clears throat> Romans 8, Jesus, Paul says, who will bring any charge against God's elect? Those whom God has chosen. It's God who justifies. Who is going to condemn? Jesus Christ, the One who died. Father and the Son. You know, no one can snatch Him out of my hand. No one can snatch Him out of the Father's hand. Right? Who is it that will condemn? It is God who justifies. It is the Son Died for us. The Father and the Son are together in a double grip of grace to accomplish His eternal purposes in a church and a people for Himself. God doesn't hope people will get saved. He accomplishes the salvation of His people in its fullness. And so Paul writing to this church, this is a doctrine I know that I've ranged afar. It is obviously something he's talked to them about. So when he plants a new baby church, they were taught a doctrine of election. Because when he writes to them, his first letter in the months following leaving them, he says, you know, we know that this is true of you. And it's the leading thing that comes out like he leads with it. So we know that it was something that he taught them. Paul expresses his conviction and his confidence that these young believers are chosen by God and His elect. In verse 5 and 4, that He has chosen you because our Gospel has come to you not only in word, but in power and with the Holy Spirit. Now he gives a number of evidences. As he goes to, he doesn't just make this assertion. He says, here's how we know. 
And I believe that, that some of it is what he led into. He said, I've, I've seen and I know your, uh, your faith and your hope and your love. These are the marks of believers. Faith, hope, and love. But he leads into for then. Therefore, connects it to it. We know, brothers, beloved of God, that you have been chosen by Him because... And here's some more evidences. He says, the Gospel comes in power. The Gospel came not only as words, but in power. And that's the difference between the way the Gospel is preached liberally. And we preach, and you'll see it in every generation since the day of Jesus. He preached the Gospel to His generation. Many were called. Many, many were called by His ministry. And as He some come and, and follow Him, He tells them, many have been called out there. You've heard the message go forth, but few are chosen. And you have come to Me. My sheep know My voice. And they come to Me. And they follow Me. And I give them eternal life. And they will never perish. And I hold them in My hand. And Father holds them in His hand. The Gospel comes to them in power and with the Holy Spirit, he says. There is times that the Gospel comes only as words. It drops to the floor. falls on hard ground, Jesus says when He tells the parable. Right? There are four kinds of soil. Sometimes it falls on hard ground. Sometimes on good soil. In between there's some, something to be talked about in a minute. But what He is saying is that when the Gospel came to you, it came with power and the Holy Spirit. What kind of power? Converting power. Right? I opening, heart-changing, life-converting, faith-producing power. When you heard the Word, something happened. You followed. You believed. You trusted. You became a follower of Christ. Many were called, but you responded. The Gospel came to you with a power. Where you see Jesus. You believe that He is who He said He is. He is. You can see your eyes are open. You see that He is who He said He is. He is the Son of the living God. Because my eyes have been opened. No man can even see the kingdom of heaven unless he has been born again. And if you see the kingdom of heaven, then the Holy Spirit came with power. You have been born again. Your eyes have been opened. Your heart has been changed. And you receive the message with gladness and give your life to Him. True conversion is a work of the Holy Spirit who raises us spiritually from the dead. The Word must come. Yes, it's preached liberally. Many are called. But Word and Spirit must come in a unique way that there is power to actually bring change and to raise people spiritually from the dead. Lazarus is our picture of this. And we, we see this. And Jesus could stand at Lazarus' tomb and say, Lazarus, I'd really like you to live. Lazarus, I'd really like you to get up and follow me. Lazarus, I'd really like you... you know. But if He just said words, what do dead people do? They don't. Like Something more than word had to come. Right? I can stand and, and again and again, whether it's the Gospel or in a graveyard, stand and speak words and nothing will happen. But in both cases, something will happen if word is accompanied by Spirit. 
We know, brothers, you were chosen by God because it didn't come only as a word, but because it came in power and with the Holy Spirit and with conviction. And he goes on to talk about a life that is changed in imitating Jesus and proclaiming the gospel and, and this. We know, Lazarus, that, that, that the word of you know, get up and go forth didn't come out. That's good news. That's gospel. Lazarus, you can live. And the gospel didn't come to Lazarus just in words. It was accompanied by a life-giving power. No one can see the kingdom of heaven unless he is born again. Unless there is a life-giving power that accompanies it to bring them. The Word came the gift of life itself. Did to Lazarus. The Bible seems to teach, as far as I read it throughout the New Testament, it is true of all of us. The gift of regeneration. The second evidence, he says, is that the Gospel not only came with power, but it came with full conviction and assurance. Right? That's what he says next. came in power of the Holy Spirit and with a full conviction. They were fully confident. They were fully convinced in, an, in a way that won't go away. If that means it with an assurance that there was a conviction that when they were suffering, and this is what Jesus is looking at, that, or Paul is looking at, that when he, he left because of suffering, he left because of persecution. And as he writes back, he knows here is a church that's under tremendous pressure and being persecuted, and he writes this to encourage them. And he says, one of the things I, ways I know that you are God's people, that you are His elect, is because you have full conviction. Right When Jesus tells the parable and He gives four soils, bad soil, hits it, nothing happens. Good soil, there's two in between. One of them is rocky soil, right? where the seed falls and something starts. It has a good beginning. But it says when the sun rises, the plant withers because it has no root. And it proves itself to not be good soil. Right? And so when Paul writes and he says that it's come to you with full conviction, that means it is you know that you know that you have actually come to know and love a living Christ in such a way that when you are persecuted, when you suffer, when your faith is tested, when the sun of suffering rises, your root does not wither. You are good soil. Because God has taken you in His hand and none shall pluck you out. As Romans 8 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation and distress and persecution, that drives a lot of people away from Jesus. When the going gets tough, people walk away. In fact, Jesus was experiencing it. He's like to the disciples, are you going to leave me too? Right? Persecution and distress and all these things, all, these are the things that try our faith and, faith and where people walk away. But the Scripture says when you walk away, it shows that you are not of us. It shows you that you had no root. It shows that the conviction wasn't the conviction of those who know Jesus in a way that none, what shall separate us? None of these things. He even says not the future or the past. How can he say not the future? How can he say to a group of people that even the future will not see you separated from Christ? Because if we suffer and things happen, unless he knows the future, is not what determines it, or whatever happens in the future is not the determining issue. That's why he says, neither the future nor the past or none of these things. What shall separate us from the love of Christ, he says, is nothing. Jesus says, none shall snatch them from my hand. No one. And the Father, who is greater than me also, 
has them. They come to me and I give them eternal life. Not maybe eternal life. Maybe not temporary eternal life. They come to me. I give them eternal life. Those who are called are justified. And those who are justified are glorified. It comes with a full conviction. That, a soul deep conviction that stands the test. Of whatever is put on it. Because it's not self-sustained. It is the work of God. In the saving of a people. And bringing us to new life. The third evidence, he says, is a desire to know Him. Right? Loved and chosen. I know that because you've been loved and chosen, the Gospel has come to you in word and power and the Holy Spirit with conviction. In verse 6 he says, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord. In the midst of persecution, in the midst of a world who said, you guys are off base, you guys are a bunch of you know, narrow-minded, you know, whatever it is, they're going to come. In the midst of a world that is doing all of that, it says that you at the center of your life have something new going on. That whatever the world says, whatever pressure comes, you want to be like Jesus Christ. This is someone who knows Him. When you know Him, you love Him. And when you love Him, you want to please Him. And you want to be like Him. And when there's a real, when the roots are there, they, it doesn't wither because they had no roots, but when the roots are there, then you grow up into Him. We grow up in our faith and knowledge of Jesus and the grace that is His. And we become more and more like Him. We become imitators, he says, of, of us and of Christ. Powerful and sweet proof to ourselves and others. If you're looking for assurance, and as he says, brothers, we know that you're elect because it came with power and there is this conviction and there is this changed life. And if at the core of your life a sweet Sweet sense of assurance comes when, even when I fail, even when I, and I fail, my friends, in ways you have no idea. We all struggle. But in the midst of all of that is to know, I want to be like Christ. I hate when I fail. I hate my sin. Lord, forgive me. Change me. Move me. This desire is a clear mark of the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit. He is a Holy Spirit. And if the Word has come, with His power, then a new life has begun. And the good work that He began, He will carry on to completion to the day of Christ. Do not ask, Spurgeon says, if you are perfect. If you're looking for assurance. Do not ask whether you are perfect. Do ask whether I follow the perfect one. We're followers of Christ. If a man follow not Christ, how often have I sat with people and just begged them to follow Jesus? Their marriage is here. You know, their work is here. Their struggles are here with their children here. And they're making decisions. They're trying to make decisions. And over and over again, it's, the decision is this. What does it look like to follow Jesus? What does it look like to be like Jesus? What does it mean? In one sense, yes. What would Jesus do? And there are a lot of things Jesus did we can never do. But there are many ways that just like here, you became imitators of us and of Christ. And so whatever it is you're going through is this. I want to please Christ. I want to be His man in my marriage. I want to be His man at work. I want to be His man as a father. I want to be His man in all these places. And if that is your heart's desire is to follow and to please Christ, he says it's a sweet evidence that you belong to Him. Let me just hit some very, very quick application then. First is simply this. This doctrine, as Paul puts it right up front with this little suffering church, is meant to comfort them. Right? Paul is writing as you read the rest of this chapter how he's praying for them and concerned about them and, and all these things. As he is attempting to encourage them. 
And so often we take a doctrine that was meant to give us encouragement. He has known me and loved me before the foundations of the world. He knew my name and He called me by name. He, you know, he, he came into my life in power. He came into my life and changed me. Not because of anything I did. Nothing I did got me in. Nothing I do in that sense is going to get me out. He loved me and He saved me for nothing in myself. He has me in His hand. Jesus holds me in His hand and none shall snatch me. And He says His hand is in the Father's hand and He is greater than all. He's the almighty self-existing Creator and none shall take me. What shall separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? None, none, none. Right? And that's the point of this doctrine is to say if you know yourself to bear these fruits and evidences, then we rest in Christ, in the salvation that is ours in Him. Some people say, oh, if you, if you give people that, if you, if you tell them they're, they're saved and it's not because of their works or anything that they've done, oh, they're going to go live. So, you know, they're just going to do whatever because, because Jesus, it's all in Jesus. But do you not hear Paul in the Scripture? You have become imitators of Jesus in us. That is one of the key marks that this has taken place. You are predestined, Romans says, not only those He predestined, He called, those He calls, He justifies. He also, right before that says, those He predestined, He predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. That's what we are, that's what we are brought into Christ for, is to be like Him. And if we come into Christ, He starts Romans 6 to say, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sitting that grace may abound? You know, is this doctrine. He, he preaches it. He says where sin abound, grace abounded so much more in this grace. And when you preach it so fully. And then Paul says, what's the logical conclusion? Well, shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Like it's, He did it despite all my... And God, he says, God forbid. Don't you know that those who died to sin in Christ will live in it no more? That they are like Him. That like as Jesus was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so too we have been raised to a new life. That question is a question that says, I still don't get it. I still don't understand. The doctrine is meant to comfort us. It doesn't mean that we don't need to come to faith. Another silly caricature that I hear is if you, know, if you say that, that people are chosen and elect from before the foundations of the world, then why do we preach the Gospel and who cares? We're going to come anyway whether we you know, convert them or not. And the answer is no. Again, do you not know the Scriptures? Jesus, Jesus answered the Pharisees and made silly arguments all the time. He says, do you not know the Scripture? Paul says it is through the preaching of the Word of God. Paul says, I have become an apostle for the sake of God's elect. And so he went to the far reaches of the earth preaching the gospel for the sake of the elect because the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. It comes with power. And so he says, it is through preaching that we, how do we know the elect? The only way to know is when the gospel comes, not in word only, but in power. And so this is who we are and is what we do. The chosen, the saved, must be saved. They must come to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. This happens through the Gospel, through the foolishness of what is preached. Spurgeon says, May God help you to believe, for here in this doctrine comes not to excuse you. The Gospel commands you and an election through the Holy Spirit enables you. It is that work of God, the power that comes with the Word. Word and Spirit. And, and the fact of His election doesn't excuse us. It will empower us to respond. It is the power we need 
to have our eyes open and to move out of our sin and into the kingdom. And so it's obvious to final very quick that all glory belongs to God. And this should humble us in the dust. I am surprised so often at people who hold a doctrine like this who can be arrogant. And my friends, all I can tell you is that it's not a fruit, biblical fruit of this doctrine. Right? It is meant to humble us in the dust. God saves. And He alone, only He can raise the spiritually dead. And when He does, it changes everything. All glory and honor. And every passage that teaches this almost makes this point again and again. Jesus, You did not choose Me. I chose You. All glory be to Christ and none to You. John 1.13, when He says you know, that he, you know, those who... Uh, believe in His name and who trust in Him, He gives the power to become the children of God. And then He says this, born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of even the will of man, but born of God. Right? When this happens and we have the power, the authority to become the sons of God, He says, don't be mistaken, not in the will of the flesh, not in the will of the man, not in anything human or fleshly. That which is born of flesh is flesh, but that which is born of God is Spirit. 1 Corinthians 1, 28 and 30, he says, God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are. Why did you choose like this, God? So that no human being would boast. My friends, I hear time and again, people will read all these texts and turn it around and say, yeah, 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 yeah. But God chose me because He knew I was going to choose Him. My friends, do you see how He labors to say He chose you? This is not of works. It is not of yourselves. Not of the will of man. Not of the will of the flesh. Not, not of human. No human being may boast. I, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And to turn around and take all of it and say, but in the end, you know what? He chose me because I was going to choose Him. For, you know, his, his, He chose me, but it's because of me. Uh, and what He knew I was going to do. Do you see how that turns all of it on its head? It humbles us in the dust. There is no boasting. But for the grace of God. And my friends, as we deal with this broken world out here, we do not stand on a moral soapbox. We stand as those who look at the world and say, but for the grace of God. What makes me to differ from the worst of the worst in our community? But the grace of God at work in me. And had it not been so, had it not been so, I would be out there and worse. If you knew me, I came late. If you knew me, I would, have been, I would have been one of those you're looking out there, the worst of the worst. But for the grace of God, as Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God and His power it work within me. All glory be to God. Come to Jesus who will teach us to be humble and gentle. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word that is living and true. We pray that you would open the eyes of our hearts and that you would stretch and change us, that you would help us to understand the things that you are saying. Father, so often we don't like what we hear, so we push back. Father, I pray that we would bow the knee under Your sovereign grace and cry mercy. 
In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.